We're back with another great episode from our visit last month to the Rocky Mountain Trauma and Emergency Medicine Conference. For those of you who missed the last episode, Will and I attended this interdisciplinary conference in June and captured a bunch of great content from the lectures for you guys to enjoy and learn from on this show. This episode features Dr. David Bliss, who formerly was the director of a level one trauma center at Children's Hospital Los Angeles and now is a professor of pediatric surgery at Cedars-Sinai Health Systems. He is board certified in general surgery, surgical critical care, and pediatric surgery. He gave a great lecture on taking care of the pediatric trauma patient. So let's dive right in. And as a reminder, follow us on Instagram, check out our website at emspodcast.com, and tell a friend about the show. Welcome to EMS Cast, where we provide high-level education for you, the providers on the streets. I'm Ross Orpit. And I'm Will Berry. And today we just listened to a fabulous lecture by Dr. David Bliss on what to do when taking care of a pediatric trauma patient. And so we're looking forward to going through this with you. And I think the first thing you started out your lecture with, which I think is, is one of the most important pieces that often gets overlooked, is supporting the psychosocial needs. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, I think we assume when an adult comes in that they can handle their own situation for the most part, right? But for a child, and honestly, even up to an adolescent, this is all a very scary experience and they don't have any context for that. So understanding how they would feel in that moment, sort of putting yourself a little bit in their place and trying to set the tone as one of, I'm here to help you and here's why I'm doing things, even if it's a pressured moment can make all the difference in the world for that child. And you talked about some different strategies too, like recognizing your own body position and body language and and the verbal language you use. Right. So for example, when you're in an EMS rig, you're having to move up and down and side to side and that sort of thing. And a lot of things require that you move quickly. But when you have a second to do so, coming down to the level of the child, you might be on a gurney, for example, right? And communicating really on the same plane physically with that child makes a whole lot of difference because now you're not the scary adult who's dictating things, even though you are, right? You're running the show, but they feel more like they're a part of that. And I think, again, even with adolescents where we might say, you know, they've got their arms crossed and they don't want to even interact and they're sort of giving it to you verbally, you can act a little goofy and you can be silly if it's appropriate, right? A badly injured person is a badly injured person. But in the moment where there's an opportunity, I tell people I embrace my dorkitude. So I actually try to be a little dorky with the teenagers, because then they can make fun of me, and then we can work together. It doesn't matter what form of provider you are. You can be in the field, you can be in the hospital, it doesn't matter. Those little moments of, I see you, and I see who you are and what you are at whatever age, and even for a two-year-old, a little touch makes all the difference in the world. Yeah, and then not only recognizing the patient's anxiety in that situation, but also the parent's. 100%. Yeah, I think, again, we're so focused on the patient, because that's the natural thing to do. And no different than if you're, you know, taking a, an elderly man away from his wife because he's having an MI. Your focus is on the patient because that's the threat at the moment. And I think we're all very much aware that the other people involved need to be informed. But we tend to sort of shortcut that with adults because we think that there's an understanding, an implication of we have to do what we have to do. We'll inform you when we can. 
and the other people aren't the partners in the process so much. They, they are. I'm not discounting it, but I think that's generally how we often approach it. With children, I would say the opposite is true. The parents are actually critical to the process, not only because it's their child and that's their right to understand what's going on, but also because they're going to help you understand the responses their child is giving you. They'll give you the context of what to expect from those interactions with their child. And they'll be that much more able to work with you if they feel like they're a partner in the process. Absolutely. And you spoke to how critically important that is in a special needs child or a nonverbal child. Sure. I I think for those who don't necessarily interact with pre-verbal children, so let's break these into three categories. There's pre-verbal, meaning you haven't gotten to the age where you're supposed to be talking yet. Let's say you're one year old and less where they can babble or maybe say one or two words. Or they're nonverbal because either, you know, they've had developmental problems like cerebral palsy, et cetera. And then there's children who just won't communicate, right? So in those scenarios, you need to sort of develop a heightened sense of what other cues that child is giving you. So facial expression, body movement, even their parents' reaction to them. So again, bringing the parents back into the equation, I'll give you a perfect example. A child with developmental delay might laugh inappropriately when they're in pain. And so you assume that that's a positive interaction. And in fact, that's their signal to pain. Well, there's no way that you would know that as a provider unless the parent said, that's Susie's way of showing you that she's scared or she's in pain. You don't have to be an expert necessarily, right? No, nobody would say everyone riding in an EMS rig has to know how to assess a six-month-old's communications, right? But to just be on heightened alert for how they're engaging with you, are they making eye contact or not? Are they withdrawing from you? Are they guarding against any particular action? Do they whimper or cry or do they seem to become less interactive when you do things? Those are all little cues that there's things going on and then turn to the parent and say, I want to make sure I'm interpreting this correctly. Is this what you're hearing and seeing? And sometimes you'll be right and sometimes you'll be wrong and the parent will feel like you're amazing for engaging them in that. And I really like the analogy that you brought of It can be very anxiety provoking for the provider when you're dealing with a pre-verbal child or a non-verbal or developmentally disabled child, but we already know how to do this on our adult patients who have had strokes or can't talk or... Right. I think that it's, it's a natural course of events for us to get locked in on the moment. So the little five-year-old developmentally delayed child, we say, oh, this is, it's a, it's a unique scenario. I don't know what to do for this. And I think you've described it perfectly. You do, because I'm almost six years old. I have a stroke tomorrow and you have to pick me up in your rig. I'm likely nonverbal if I have the typical, you know, adult middle cerebral artery kind of stroke. Well, you've had to learn assessment tools to work around that, which are how you interact with me, how you interact with my partner or the people that were with me at the time. And again, having that little bit of heightened awareness to nonverbal cues, that those skills are the same. It's just you have to be able to say, wait a second, it's a five-year-old, but it's a communication question. It just happens to be a five-year-old. And so we've talked about recognizing the patient's anxiety, talked about recognizing the parent's anxiety, as well as their ability to help us in this situation. But you also talked about recognizing your own anxiety and the right. importance of that. Yeah. So I, first of all, I would tell everyone who listens this, don't think for a moment that pediatric practitioners don't have anxiety over this. So if it makes you feel any better, we do, you know, particularly because I think those of us who love children and want to care for children feel that much more pressure for it to go well. And I think above all, we say, well, children should do well. There's this sort of general sense and general pressure that, oh my gosh, you know, if Dave Bliss has some awful event 
he's almost 60. That's okay. It's tragic for his family, but he's lived a good life. A two-year-old, you, you know, you feel as a practitioner of any sort, gosh, there's a lot of pressure on me to make sure this goes well. And everyone's looking at this and saying it's supposed to go well. So the reality is that's a normal human response. All of us are, I think, genetically programmed to protect children and to feel that much more responsible. Don't run from that. Don't run from that. That's a healthy, normal response. I think you want to feel it and say to yourself, okay, I acknowledge that I hear that and feel that and that my heart rate is faster than it should be. Now I got to get to business. And then a part of that is this perceived complexity in kids, which I think is important as we get to the basic principles of treatment in these pediatric trauma patients is breaking down that barrier. Right. So I'll give you a sports analogy. You know, I'm a tennis player. I love watching tennis. I love playing tennis. I played since I was a little kid. And to me, tennis is a very simple game, right? Because I played it my entire life. Now you said, you know, I watch football, but I'm not as attentive. If you said to me, could I right now go and coach a football team in the NFL? Not a chance, not a chance. I couldn't organize the simplest play for that, right? That's not actually because NFL football is any more complex in terms of the physics of it. Tennis is a pretty complex thing. It's just that I know tennis and I don't know football that well. So I sort of look at at kids and adults the same way. Yes, there are definitely differences. Kids have different physiology. They're Vital signs are going to be different. Their developmental levels vary by age, et cetera. That's not that they're that complex. It's that you're just not that used to it, right? I wouldn't go into that saying that's a reason for fear. It's a reason for being open-minded about the data and what you hear and see. So I'll give you a sort of a concrete example. You say, gosh, I'm picking up a two-year-old. I don't remember what their heart rate should be. And how would I keep that in my head? I've got to keep everyone else's things in my head. And you say, well, the kid's initial heart rate is, is 120. So I don't, is that normal? Is that abnormal? I know it, that would be a little fast for an adult, but kids are a little bit faster. Okay. Well, I need to keep in mind that I can't categorize that yet. So I'm not going to respond to it necessarily, but I'm going to think about, do I need to get more data? Do I need to ask a question? Do I need to call ahead to the receiving facility, for example, and say, hey, I'm not sure what this means, but I'm getting this heart rate, this blood pressure, and I'm not super comfortable with a two-year-old. Where I think people make, errors is maybe the wrong word, where they, they sort of get lost a bit is they feel the need because we all want to be responsible to categorize it, to say that's normal or abnormal. And nobody wants to say, I'm not sure. I think saying I'm not sure is the healthiest possible approach to that, right? Because that then asks a question. And you generally can't get into too much trouble asking a question because there will be somebody who can answer that question. Where people, I think, have the hardest time is, well, what if it's a five-alarm fire kind of situation? I mean, the person's unstable. Well, thank goodness you can sort of fall back on the basics, right? You don't have to then remember specific things about anybody. You just say, okay, airway, breathing, circulation, deficits, exposure. It it actually all comes back to kind of the, the same stuff. So don't feel like you have to be a genius with respect to what you keep in your head, but do think if I don't know for a fact that a piece of data is normal or abnormal, I'm just going to reserve the possibility that could be either. I love that. That practice humility leads to much better care. So our ABCDs are the same. Our ATLS principles still apply here. It's really those medication dosing and the vitals that are a little different And I loved what you referred to as standardized shortcuts, which we did an episode before on taking care of the critically ill pediatric patient. 
And in that episode, we really harped on cheating is encouraged. <laughs> Absolutely. 100%. I, I, I'm going to use that. I'm going to steal it. I'm going to steal that. Cheating is encouraged. Yeah, I, I think, look, we have this unnatural sense in all fields related to medicine that we're supposed to be like a computer and have every bit of knowledge, not only in our brain, but accessible to us at any one moment. And so if you've ever been stressed in your life, and all of us have more times than we can count, you know that your brain shuts down, right? You can't, you can barely pull up your own name, much less anything more meaningful than that. So cheating is a way to overcome that moment, right? Brain fog, brain shutdown, whatever you say, okay, I, okay, I can't think now. Where's my cheat sheet? Where's my standardized tools? Where's my tape to measure the child or whatever it is? And then let your brain recover from that moment of stress, reset. And now you can bring back the data that you do have in your head and start to use it. Otherwise, and I think we've all been in this, you feel this sort of locked in sensation where the world cones in, cones in, gets smaller and smaller and smaller, and you can't think. And now you can't take information in and you can't make good judgments about what's around you. You use one of those, again, I'm a, I love it, the cheating approaches, it snaps you out of that and says, okay, this is actually manageable. There are tools for this. I don't have to be the genius of the universe to handle this situation. And not only do I not think that's, there's no shame in that. I actually, I use it all the time and I fully encourage it. And I, this is what I've done for 25 years. One question I have, a lot of us are really familiar with the common axiom that a pediatric patient will compensate and compensate and compensate and then just fall off a cliff. Right. And I think that sometimes people almost present that as though this moment of decompensation in a child is like a lightning strike, like we can't right. predict it or whatever. Right. And you touched on this briefly in your presentation, but I was hoping you could put a little more depth or context or kind of meat on the bone about how pediatric compensation is different how it's the same, and what warning signs there are that our pediatric patient is losing their ability to compensate. Right. So one of the core differences is children have the ability to constrict all their peripheral blood vessels much better than you and I can do as adults. And particularly older adults like me who are on vasodilators and that sort of thing, that really makes that difficult, right? So when we go into shock, our blood pressure tends to drop pretty quickly along with our heart rate going up. So in babies in particular, but in children in general, you'll see the heart rate going up and up and up, but the blood pressure won't necessarily drop. So that's probably the first point of confusion, which is people will say, well, I do see this heart rate, which has gone from 120 to 130. And again, not certain whether even that 120 was abnormal to begin with, but the blood pressure is still, you know, whatever it was, 90 over 50. So it must be that that heart rate was from pain or some other phenomena because otherwise wouldn't we see the blood pressure dropping along with the heart rate going up? The answer is no, that that can fool you. So you're 100% correct in that we do use this shortcut or this shorthand of you know children falling off a cliff, kind of like elderly people do. In reality, if you look back at the numbers, there's always a sort of march towards that, but it's not that all data are what's called concordant. You know, So the heart rate is going up, but the blood pressure is stable or drifting down a little bit, but not as much as you think. The respiratory rate is going up a little bit or going down, you know, they're becoming hypopnic. It's that we sometimes miss those, I would call them a little bit more subtle signs, but it is correct to say it's not like they're going along with a heart rate of 80 and a blood pressure of 120 over 80, and all of a sudden it's a heart rate of, you know, 200 and a blood pressure of 50. 
But I will say it's very easy for all of us to discount one or two numbers. And this actually really points out a, a very important sort of cognitive piece, thinking piece, which is once we put people into categories, we then have what's called a confirmation bias. We want to look for data that meets our model. So if we say, oh, I think this child is stable for whatever reason you think that, then you go and you look at the blood pressure, say, yeah, that blood pressure is okay. Well, now you get to the heart rate and say the heart rate is a little fast. Well, everything else supports, your, and you're not thinking this out loud. You're not saying, oh, I have defined this child as stable, but you actually have. Now you're going to take that heart rate and say, mm, I'm not sure what that means. Or maybe even just say, oh, I'm going to discount that altogether. And all of us have done this. And that's when I go back and look at these charts and look at you know how things went, that's inevitably where things kind of went off the rails. And, and in the best of hands, by the way. A couple of tips when it comes to treatment and going along with the vitals, which I really liked, is using the appropriate size blood pressure cuff to make sure you get an accurate number. A nice trick is if you're having difficulty getting the appropriate size for the upper arm is to use the thigh. Yeah. So, you know, little kids in particular, little tiny upper arm, sometimes you just don't have a small enough cuff to fit on that. And even the smallest adult cuff is going to wrap around twice around that baby's arm. So, you know, the leg is a perfectly legitimate place. And if you just have a general memory of where the main artery runs kind of on the inner thigh, more towards the front, if you will, that's sort of where you want to put that pressure point on the cuff. And if it wraps around in the appropriate size, it's not sort of flopping in the breeze or, or super pinched, then that's great. You've, you know, you've got an accurate answer and you don't, it doesn't have to be the thigh only. You could use the lower leg as well, but it tends to be, if you can't get the arm to work, you can't get the lower leg to work either. So the thigh tends to be a good substitute. The other thing that I really liked that you brought up was getting over our fear of the IO if you're having yes. difficulty getting peripheral access. I think there's probably a few things behind that, right? An intraosseous needle, you know, you, you poke this pretty mean device into the leg or arm of a child. And I mean, step back from that for a second, right? I'm about to stab a child into their bone. So any normal human, I don't care who you are, says, that's not okay, right? That just doesn't feel right on anybody's planet. Okay, acknowledge that. That's our fear. That's our emotional issue. That's okay. I, I don't, I feel that way too, by the way. But then you have to say, is it better for me to sit there and torture the child by poke, 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 poke everywhere else and leave the child a pincushion and still not have access and not have gotten labs either, by the way, because the intraosseous can get us all kinds of labs too, is, you know what? Bite the bullet, do it. It's a moment of pain and suffering for all concerned. You know, you won't like it. The child definitely won't like it. The parents won't like it. The staff, if it's in the um, ED, won't like it. Although I will say, if you say to everyone, we can't get IV access, this is going to be painful but quick, and then we get to move on, including the parents hearing that, it really sort of settles the room. It's often just that little bit of effort to say, here's the reason, and acknowledge that it's not going to be fun right? I'm not going to pretend this doesn't hurt. It hurts. It's your bone. But the other piece I was going to say is I think people have grown up with this fear that they're going to do something wrong in putting the needle in or in managing it. So a good example is if you're an EMS provider and you're going to do this in the field. And I think the first responders you know, feel like, gosh, what if I go through the backside of the bone? What if I get into an artery? What if I miss the bone altogether and I cause a compartment syndrome in the leg? And my response to you guys would be this. If you're at the point where an IO is needed, then all of those other considerations are secondary, number one, and number two, highly unlikely. 
So the percentage at which those things happen is so low, even in relatively inexperienced providers. So even if you haven't put in a lot of IOs, the chances that you cause serious long-term harm are so small that I would say it's overwhelmingly positive for you to go forward with that. And I will stand up in court and say that you're welcome to call me, you know. (laughs) Great. I think another big thing is don't forget to warm. Right. Right. I agree. That stuck out to me as well. Yeah. So children get cold very, very fast. And, you know, I'm going to talk about this a little bit in my presentation tomorrow, but if you think about, first of all, the mechanisms by which a lot of children get injured, and and I'm going to call out specifically in rural environments. So having practiced in Colorado, but also in Oregon, uh, it's a really interesting environment for all of us who are in medical practice, right? Because you have the urban-rural divide, and you have a lot of people, and particularly a lot of children, that live really far from healthcare or from definitive healthcare, let's just say. So when I was in Southern Colorado, we would have kids come from hundreds of miles away. So you might imagine that they're going to start cooling the moment they're injured, and they might not get to the definitive center for an hour, two hours, three hours, five hours. But regardless of that duration, unlike adults that can conserve heat very well, children can't do that. And particularly little, little children can't conserve heat very well, and they can't produce heat the way adults can. So the smaller you get, the younger you get, the less able you are to actually produce heat. So neonates get cold within minutes, as an example, but school-age children, so you know, five, six, eight, nine, ten, can drop a degree centigrade within 15 minutes. And so it's an utterly harmless thing to warm them, right? There's almost no downside to that as long as you don't, you know, make them hyperthermic, but that's unlikely if you're using the various kind of warmers we use. But Ask yourself, depending on the type of environment you're in, can you use warm blankets? Because if you don't have a sort of commercial warming device, you can still cover people with blankets and let them warm. There's those really neat field devices that are reflective that you know maintain heat in and absorb heat uh, externally. Those kind of th- maneuvers are great. And lastly, I would say this. It matters not just because in general, that's a good idea to have people stay warm. It matters because They don't have to get very cold to become coagulopathic and to then have whatever complications ensue because bleeding gets worse. And oh, by the way, you know, the surgeons can't do much about hypothermia-related coagulopathy. So the default really should be we should warm and we should not warm as a question. So that should be don't cover somebody until you've seen everything. You know, you have to do your exam and make sure you're comprehensive. But once you've done that, get them covered as much as you can and conserve heat as much as you can. I should add one last thing. IV fluid is a source of cooling and gets forgotten a lot. And in the field, that's tough, right? Because carrying around warm fluids is, is difficult. It's not impossible. Some EMS rigs come with warming systems and, um, or even microwaves, and you can use that sort of thing. To the extent that you can use warm fluids, or some EMS providers will carry those chemical packets that are warming packets, and they'll put them up against the IV fluid bags to try to warm them in advance. Those can be extraordinarily helpful to maintain core body temperature, particularly in children. One thing you were discussing, the importance of bleeding control, that's obviously important for all patients. And there's a big, I guess, public health movement these days for bleeding control. One really practical question is a lot of commercially developed tourniquets are sized for adults. And a lot of the common guidance is don't improvise a tourniquet, use a commercially manufactured tourniquet. So I don't know, do you have any pearls of wisdom on managing massive hemorrhage in a pediatric patient where a commercially manufactured tourniquet is way too big? 
Yeah. So a couple of things, and, and I can't say that I've had the occasion to do this much, but some of those tourniquets you can wrap around twice. So if you can get it to go around twice and then it'll have the same symmetry, it won't tighten as well. So you actually have to tighten harder than you would if it's gone around twice. It doesn't necessarily tighten as readily. It's actually a technique we use in the operating room quite frequently as we use double looped devices to close off vessels temporarily. So that, that can work. Um, I, I would not so much disagree as I would say, you know, in the field, you have to use what you can use. So I've been in that scenario and my wife crashed her bike and not bleeding issue, but she fractured her wrist and I had to improvise a splint and put her in the position of function in the field because we were about two hours away from care. We were in a mountain environment, right? And there was literally no healthcare around. I still keep a picture of that because I'm actually proud of that splint, right? So I, I would tell somebody who's in that resource constrained environment, whatever stretchy device you can find, a piece of rubber, hose, I don't care, that can be you know tensioned and then take a stick and twist it around. Now you're gonna have to find a way to then hold that in place, right? It does have to be something stretchy because something that's that's just hard and rigid, you can't tension that. But beyond that, I don't have any particular uh, opinion. As the Stop the Bleed program particularly has been um, promoted and extended out and out to a lot of places, those commercially available tourniquets are now available. But I do think it is, a you point out an important thing, it is a hole in the process, if you will, that they are not directed towards children. And that's, you know, look, we all have seen the shootings at Uvalde and places like that. Those are little kids. So if you're not prepared with some kind of tool, then you're going to have to improvise that. The simplest answer I can give you is find something that's rubber. And even if it's a thick rubber band, right? You'd be surprised. On a little kid, a thick rubber band that's, that can go all the way around can be enough that if you just simply tie that, we use those as tourniquets in the operating room for putting in IVs. That can work beautifully. So again, I think context, use what you have. If you have the adult one, try to make it work. If it doesn't work, abandon it and use what you have. Well, and I think if I'm hearing you correctly is, of course, we we don't want to, out of fear, do nothing. Correct. We still need to control that hemorrhage. And if the only way we can do that is to improvise something, better to control the hemorrhage. Yeah. I, again, what I think hits people is, number one, it's a child and I'm going to hurt them right? And this hurts. If you've ever had one of these tourniquets put on you, which I have just to, to understand what I'm doing to people, it's meant to be really, really tight and it hurts, right? And that's in an intact adult. So you might imagine what that's like in a child that has a gunshot or a fracture or something else that's led to this. So again, that's where the person in the field has to say, again, I understand this is scary and this is going to be painful for this child. It is my best option and it is what's going to get this child through this and if they have the memory of it and can come back and yell at me, I'll take that. I'll take that every day. And the same is, I would say, about the improvisation. I think if you have to improvise and that's what saves the day, then you've done a tremendous service. And if you improvise and it doesn't work, no shame. You've tried the best you can in that scenario. At least you've tried. I think we all would have trouble our, ourselves being in a situation where we later say, I wonder if I could have done that improvised tourniquet. And instead I waited for EMS to get there or the like, and what would have that looked like had I acted as opposed to saying, what could I do wrong is let's try. Perfect. Thank you so much, Dr. Bliss. Any other words of wisdom for taking care of these trauma patients? Well, a couple of things. I think number one, you know, we all owe a debt of gratitude to uh, first responders in general, but EMS in particular, because in large measure, these kids don't get to us safely without you guys, period. So as we say, mad props to you guys for that. And, you know, not joking, this is really serious stuff. And, and I'm 
really grateful, particularly for the flight folks, because having been on flights myself, you know, I used to go out as a flight doctor. It takes an awful lot of guts, frankly, to do that kind of work. And those of us who, you know, benefit from it along with the patients are extraordinarily grateful. The only other sort of small pearl I can offer is this. I think because all of us as providers, our own epinephrine levels are so high, right? We're so stressed that it's easy to physically over-respond to certain things. So one really good example I can give you is when you have to intubate a child, it's very common because people are, are scared to put the ET tube in you know, further than you might need to. And so again, as you're intubating, take a second and say, is the tube in sufficiently? And just stop. Because otherwise, right men stem intubations are super common, particularly in, in little kids. Same thing with putting in an IV or doing any other procedures is it's inevitably going to be shorter distances for things. They're going to be smaller. They're going to be closer to the surface, whatever that might be. So take your own pulse, calm down for a second and say, okay, I only have to get a short distance in with this IV and I don't have to move too quickly only because I'm feeling agitated, right? Take a beat and say, I got this. I know what I'm doing. It's just a little bit different sized person and make it happen. And it'll be great. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Bliss. My pleasure. 